0: Words, they get golly hard when they jumble, jumping over hurdles, like a turtle, and pool, like and cake pool. cold blood is with I'm a boss.
1: This is that got me thinking and I'm Ellie Newman. This week I've been thinking about arguing and trying to convince people of our position and how that rarely if ever works. I've been thinking about identity and climate change, and I've been thinking about shared interests and informed decisions. My guest today is Philip Kitcher. He is one of the most influential philosophers of science of the past three decades. He is currently a professor of philosophy at Columbia University and the author of numerous books, most recently co-writing The Season's Altar, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts, which he co-wrote with Professor Evelyn Fox Keller. Welcome, Mr. Kitcher, and thank you so much for joining us today. And that well, got thank, me thinking. Thank you
0: very much for having me.
1: Okay, and I'm I'm not calling you Mr. Kitcher. I'm not <laughs> comfortable with that. I'm switching to Professor. Um, you're, you're, why don't
0: you just Why don't you just switch to Philip? You so think so? so?
1: Your body of yeah. work. I just I have to at least once say Professor, just because to show um, my uh, my gratitude for the abundance of depth of work you've done. So I'll slip that in thank somewhere. You. But we'll thank go with you. Philip. We'll see when appropriate. Yeah. So you've written on mathematics, ethics, democracy, just to name a few topics. Why climate change and and why now?
0: Oh, well, yes, you see, uh, for Evelyn and me, Evelyn being my co-author, this was simply something we felt we had to do. Uh, It just seems to us like uh, one of the two most urgent problems of our time, the other one being, of course, um, the nuclear threat, which uh, we might have hoped was uh, was by and gone, but uh, keeps on being revived. Uh, so both of us, for both of us, we are nearing the ends of our careers. Um, we have other projects, many other projects that we wanted to engage in, but this just seemed too important, um, and so we've been going backwards and forwards on whether to write something about it for several years now, um, and people have pers- who've heard us talk have said oh yes you've got to, you've got you must write it's too important and we felt that and so in the end we decided that we must we must try to make our voices heard well, uh, well
1: and you debated for some time about whether or not there was something that you could add that this had been written on right. you know right. by it's by true. experts and, and in depth and yet you decided that, that you know the story maybe needed to be told again and maybe in different voices and you really took a unique approach
0: yeah actually, there are two things I think we bring that other that other treatments haven 't had. The first is um, a kind of synoptic approach to the whole issue. Um, I think no other previous book has focused on Everything from the science at the beginning, from the 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 practical consequences to uh, the needs of uh, of doing something, to the ethical issues about what we owe to various groups of people, to the to the global character of the whole thing, and to the uh, political changes and economic changes that might be necessary. Um, So we really did try to cast our net very very broadly indeed in the book. But you're right, the principle the principle innovation of the book is that we're trying to set up models for how people who disagree might um, make progress on this issue.
1: And and that's a risky balance, I think, to try to write something that educates and informs and yet tackles so many areas of the topic, and yet without having done that, you really can't educate or inform fully.
0: Yeah, well, as you, as, 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 your interest in dialogue um, suggests. I mean, what we really want to do is um, help self-education on a broad scale. I mean, we decided not to write the book in a highly didactic way. You know, this is the truth, but to have... Different, two different voices, well, actually a series of, uh, of different voices, but under two main headings. A, a voice that's very much alarmed about climate change and thinks we ought to be doing something about it. And then another voice that is reasonable, kindly, even sensitive, but at the same time wants to resist um, activism in this area. And so we wanted these voices to sort of engage with one another so that um, readers, wherever they... Uh, stand on the issue, could um, think about how to converse with their friends with whom they disagree. And we tried to give lots of notes for, for sources that they might go to in doing this. But in the end, uh, as we say, I think, in the um, at the beginning of the book, uh, what we want to do is start a conversation, not end it.
1: Well, and one of you, I don't know which one, is a closet playwright because... There Actually, were I, there it, were me, set notes me. and mm-hmm. which I which I love because I felt like the whole approach in that as well makes it very welcoming and very readable and I think um almost that you have sort of a couple friends holding your hands throughout the book. And for a topic that's so overwhelming and so frightening to people, and, and with that I think especially in America we have a tendency to not want to look at that, um, yeah. I think it's critical to have something that is sort of gently guiding you through this, because without people being willing to actually think for themselves about it and realize they can think through the complexity, we're, we're fairly lost.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you for both the understanding and the very kind and generous words. So, yeah, um, when I was thinking about this, it was actually our editor who said, you know, you need to think about this more dialogically. I immediately thought, dialogically, dialogue. And then I thought, philosophical dialogues tend to be sort of stiff. What we really need are everyday situations in which people who like and respect actually often love one another, those are our characters, um, uh, sort of get together and, and try to talk things through. And so that's what we tried to convey. And uh, I really enjoyed this this way of presenting ideas and, uh, and exchanging, uh, exchanging them, exchanging arguments, exchanging reasons. It, it just seemed to me so free and liberating and... Uh, I'm sure I haven't gotten away from all the stiffness that goes with the academic territory, but at the same time, I really did want to make it um, flexible and alive and uh, um, present characters with whom readers might be able to identify.
1: Well, you definitely seem like you're having fun, and how wonderful to be able to show that you could have fun with a topic that is often um, approached with such a sense of of unsolvable catastrophe. So you begin the book from the future, talking about catastrophe, you begin the book from the future, the year 2159, during the climate address, uh, post-decades of denial, uh, water wars, nuclear exchanges, the peace of Cairo, and great... Uh, pandemics, a lot of the population has been um, eradicated. Uh,
0: Less than than 1% has survived.
1: And so what was I thinking about starting in the future?
0: Well, I wanted to begin with um, a, a real warning, a real warning about how bad things could be and possibly something that people will just react to saying, ah, that's over the top. We really don't have to worry about that. I don't think that the scenario we present has a terrifically high probability, I certainly hope it doesn't, um, but it's the sort of thing that's on the cards, and so we, I thought we would begin with the view from the future, the survivors coming together and um, this very solemn address reminding them, the young people especially, of what had happened. and how humanity had nearly been wiped out by its refusal to uh, take these kinds of issues seriously. So the thought was to begin with that, and then we end the book uh, in the epilogue with something that's much more low-key, set a century earlier in 2059, where you've got this old couple, they're in their 80s, and he, like... Uh, His male predecessors in the earlier dialogues has always sort of been skeptical about the need for climate action, and she has really pushed it for years, and it hasn't happened. And their life isn't awful, but it's difficult. It's difficult in all sorts of mundane ways. You know, they can't find painkillers. The food isn't uh, isn't very fresh. The telephone cell service is... uh, um, is comes in and out. Elect- electrical power comes in and out. It's it's very hot. There, our uh, children and grandchildren are in a place that's vulnerable to flooding and storms, and they can't get through. It's it's a presentation of something that's very ordinary and, and small scale, as opposed to the place we begin, which is with a basically a large-scale apocalypse. But it's supposed to um, present what we call, using the title of the dialogue, the banality of suffering. Um, that's a phrase we, I, I stole from Hannah Arendt, uh, a book on Eichmann being about the banality of evil. Um, so It's an attempt to sort of frame the entire dialogues. The dialogues are much more hopeful in the middle of the book. Uh, Then people are making progress towards trying to solve the problem. And the beginning and the end are supposed to show uh, the effects of what might happen if we don't do that, both at the grand scale uh, at the beginning, and then at this much more human scale um, at the end. And I don't know whether that works or not, but it's, Well, it's, I was just going
1: to say, I think it absolutely does. As you were, were talking, I was thinking about how you also probably missed your calling as a, a psychologist because you, you really nail the complexities of each individual as far as the internal conflicts and also the internal motivations as far as why people may not want to look at something or uh, 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 in the opposite, why someone may embrace something like this and really want to, you know, then, you know, save the world and we will we'll sacrifice other things in doing so, and that that also has uh, subtle complexities.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I tried. I don't, I really don't know um, whether I succeeded. I think, uh, I mean, what's this, what this has actually inspired in me for future work is a uh, um, uh, hope that I can actually do that better, because I do think that... Um, large ideas and issues can be really presented very well in this sort of format and that if I got some advice from people who really know how to write things, I might be able to do it better.
1: Well, let's see if we can coax you into maybe giving us a quick simplified synopsis of the basics around measuring carbon dioxide and GMT and what it would mean for a global mean temperature rise in 2100.
0: Okay. All right. So this is where we begin. It's with the issue that has divided our country for so long, the issue of whether this is really happening. Um, And so the first dialogue um, takes place on the morning after the Paris Accord has been signed. And a woman in her 50s is in a kitchen. And she's, uh, she's very excited by this. And her husband comes down. Um, It's a day off for both of them it's a weekend they've got plans to do something and she's full of excitement and he's pretty grumpy about it because he thinks that she's far too excited about this and he can't understand why she's so um so credulous as he would as he thinks about the, the this this climate danger and so she tries to convince them. So she says, okay, well now the, uh, the, the temperature of the planet, the global mean temperature, and it's important that that's an average temperature. We don't want to, um, you know, senators from Oklahoma uh, saying, ah, well, look, it's snowing in Washington today. Uh, that shows that there isn't uh, climate change, as if, uh, you know, it, it, everything turned on what happened at a particular place on a particular day. This is all about averages. And so she tries to um, show her husband, her husband of many years, um, some statistics and some data and some charts that show uh, the way in which the average temperature of the planet has been increasing. Um, And then she explains um, that at the same time, the concentrations of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere have been going up. And he says, ah, Yeah, well, it's just a correlation. It doesn't mean anything. Um, And she says, uh, hang on a minute. Um, In the 19th century already, people discovered the greenhouse effect. And that was discovered because when they did a simple calculation of the energy coming into the Earth and the energy leaving the Earth, uh, the Earth's temperature came out to 30 degrees Celsius too low. And that's when they discovered that there was energy being re-reflected from the atmosphere because of the presence of certain kinds of compounds in the atmosphere. And so she explains that to him, and he says, Ah, well, yeah, okay, so maybe that's happening, but maybe it's not a big part of the story. And she then says to him, to him, well but uh, you know what are the what are the other possible causes and talks about the ways in which those have been screened out by the science community so what's supposed to be happening in that bit of dialogue is she's supposed to be laying out not in detail but in a structured form that everybody can understand the case for saying that our planet is getting warmer and we're contributing a lot to it
1: and that, with the global mean temperature just r- raising a, a degree or two, has huge changes, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. Um, and the way they're measuring the carbon dioxide and why that is important—you'll explain it much better than I. But um, what what is returning back to the Earth,
0: right? Yeah, yeah. So. Um because of, because the more carbon dioxide you have in the atmosphere, the more, um, the more heat gets trapped, basically. And uh, so he says, well, yeah, all right, so you've got these graphs and you've got all this stuff, but how do I know that these the scientists have done it right? And it's that point that she switches and she says, well, you know, n- neither you nor I are going to be able to follow the statistical analyses of this. So we're always vulnerable to people saying to us, oh, well, it, it works this way and it works that way, and we don't have any independent basis for understanding but what we've got here are some groups of people. There are people who are not climate scientists and who are funded by the fossil fuel industry, and those are the deniers. And then you've got, you know, a whole, you know, hundreds, thousands of climate scientists around the world who have all come to agreement on this. Now, do you really think that there's some sort of mafia um, movement going on in the uh, Um, in the climate science community that's gotten all these scientists into line. Um, You know, think about the way science operates. It's a very competitive business, and young people are always trying to uh, uh, show that their elders and betters are wrong, and they're trying to make names for themselves. You'd think that climate science would be full of debate, and there would be all these young people scrambling for recognition. That's not the way it is at all. On the other hand, we do know that the fossil fuel companies and right-wing think tanks have paid enormous sums of money to people to uh, um, spread doubt and dissension about this. Well,
1: and and I think we can can. trust our own ability to reason through. We may not understand every aspect of the science or the technology, but I think if we try, we can follow it through enough to say, is this reasonable, is this logic, does this fit with the other things that I I know and trust. Um, I'm
0: glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because we try to take you, um, as it were, a certain distance. In terms of what you can figure out and reason for yourself, but I have to say if you um, if you have serious doubts about how these graphs were constructed and uh, you actually go and start to try to look at the ways in which the people who have um, who have drawn those graphs have done the sort of statistical sampling from the measurements they have and of you know Um, put the graph together on the basis of the data. That's very technical scientific work. You could educate yourself, but it would take a lot of time
1: But I think you can follow the work without having to check the work. And I think that's Uh important because I think in our society, I think especially today when we have access to so much information and so much misinformation and that we are a culture of not wanting to take personal responsibility in all sorts of ways. We want to trust the government. We want to trust the police. And and in the majority of cases, that's a good result. Um, But we owe it to ourselves and to society to also question and to say, does this make sense? And I do have a good mind and a good brain, and I can yep. follow this reasoning. And I think that element of personal sup- responsibility is critical in battling um uh, a nation that is and could be misinformed my daughter was saying recently she was watching jimmy kimmel and he does this thing out on the street and he was asking people about gmos and are you for or against gmos and you know they take a strong strong position they were either very for it or very against it. and he said well do you know what gmo stands for and they'd sort of muddle around and they'd maybe guess and they'd start laughing and say oh well no and then he had something about north korea and you know should we should we we punish North Korea, and then he pulled out a map and said, "Well, can you show me where North Korea is on the map?" And they sort of, "Oh, you have a map," sort of yep. embarrassedly giggling again. And and no, you know they were didn't know. It's no, that's Alaska, um, or somewhere else. And so I yep. think. Part of the issue of climate change will we will need to address as a society is and you you speak a lot about it in in some of your other writing and and speeches and talking about our democracy and um, for a democracy to be successful, it needs to be a democracy of educated people who do take responsibility for their opinions and positions.
0: I agree with you completely about that. I mean, it is important. And what we're trying to do with the book is to help people, uh, as you so nicely put it, follow the reasoning, even though it's they're not going to be able to check every detail. Um, you know, it's it's very interesting. I mean, we do have to think for ourselves, but part of the great success of human beings is Our ability to learn from one another and to take things from one another to pool bits of knowledge this happens within the sciences themselves I mean when a scientist proposes a a new result right then that the reasoning the structure of the reasoning is typically put forward in but nobody gets to check or as it were all the details um,
1: and and what? I think
0: I'm. I think I'm going to have to move to another phone. because oh, okay. uh, I'm. I'm a bit worried that this phone is going to conk out. Um, so let me just uh, quickly um, change. Get right. Another phone. We'll do a You'll station
1: identification. Phone. All right. This is okay. KDPI 88.5 FM, drop-in radio, listener-supported, non-commercial, community radio, streaming live at kdpifm.org 24-7. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm speaking with Philip Kitcher, author, co-author with Evelyn Fox Keller of The Season's Altar, How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts.
0: Okay, okay. we're back. We're back. And, uh um, and,
1: and and so through your research, what do you feel like prevents, and maybe also we'll talk about what encourages behavior change? I mean, one element I think that came up again and again was this this many different fears, but one around the costs—the costs of addressing climate change—that yeah. it would yeah. potentially decimate the economy, which in reality it could it could end up boosting it.
0: Yes, I mean I think. Many, many people who oppose climate change don't realize the extent to which this is a remarkable opportunity, not only for our country, but for other countries around the world. Um, in, in essence, it's going to ask for um, all sorts of new forms of employment. It's going to ask for a complete rebuilding of certain parts of the infrastructure. And those things are, are going to have the potential, at any rate, to lead to big economic booms. Um, one thing that was quite, quite remarkable, I mean, one of, at one point in one of the dialogues, um, we point out that uh, that there are more people working, installing solar panels than in the country than there are um, coal miners. Now, the figure we give is twice as many solar panel installers as coal miners, but Actually, that's now completely out of date. At the moment, there are, there are about four times as many solar panel installers as coal miners. It's going up and up and up all the time. That's where the jobs are. Um, now, I think it's I, I think it's very very and we think it's very important that in these kinds of transitions, there's got to be not only um, you know, the opportunity, but also a certain amount of taking care of the people who have to make these kinds of abrupt changes. I think it is reasonable for people to fear that their lives are going to be um, affected by um, prompt action of the kind we need to climate change, and that requires reassurances and compassion on the part of the government. It probably doesn't require tax cuts for the rich. What it probably requires is a rebuilding of the social network that we have. And I just don't see uh, any way of protecting people apart from that. So if you are ideologically opposed to um, you know, helpful social services that give people protections then, of course, you are going to feel that um, this causes a great deal of change with a, uh, a, uh, a potential for a lot of suffering. But the answer to that is go in for the change, reap the benefits, and protect the people who... Uh, get involved in having to make these kinds of changes.
1: Well, I wonder if there also hasn't developed other ideological pressures for each position because it's become so polarized and you have what some see as radicals that are the climate changers and environmentalists and then others who are against it. And and there seems to be an identification with their, their own identity as far as which side they're going to take.
0: That's completely correct I mean there's, there's very good research that um, shows that people um, whatever their training in science tend to uh, uh, disagree on this issue on the basis of their politics uh, and you know so even people who don't know much about science will go um, in one direction or another because of their um, because of their political affiliations and similarly for, for actual practicing scientists. I mean, this is, uh, you you know, it looks like a case in which nobody is doing much um, serious thinking things through. And that's why we felt, as we wrote the book, that it isn't just important to get the scientific issues straight. It's important to to think about the economic issues, the ethical issues, the political issues, and about ways of, of protecting people. I mean, much of the, much of the um, dialogue is concerned with ways in which people can be protected about against being hurt either by climate change or by measures taken to do something about climate change Well and
1: it's funny at any level you know the local level I was just at a meeting um, with a candidate for mayor and they were talking about is there a parking problem and I thought he did a wonderful job of switching us off whether or not there was a parking problem to are there pop parking concerns on both sides, and how do we resolve those concerns in ways Mm -hmm. that alleviate the concern of the other side? And it really is the sort of um, magical talent Uh, That we need, especially in an issue like climate change, where you have polarization, you have people identifying with one side or another, and you have this fear, I think, of hopelessness. I think oftentimes it's presented with such doom and gloom and such pessimism that no one wants to get near it with a 10-foot pole. So it's much easier to sort of say, oh, I don't believe in it, because there seems as though there's no solution.
0: I think I think you're right I think there are solutions I think that we don't yet know which of those which of those solutions will work best and most easily in terms of helping people um, live happy and, uh, and fulfilling lives um, and so this is going to be a phase of great um, sort of exploration and experimentation um, and that's That's both inspiring, I think, and sort of scary. And because it's sort of scary, what we need to start from is a framework of cooperation. So that's really our thought. Um, If this is going to take uh, root at the, the grassroots level, then it's gotta be because people who disagree come together and try to figure out together the kinds of things that might be done and a movement builds from below. I mean, as you've pointed out, uh, large-scale political discourse is incredibly polarized at the moment, and that is not good, either for getting a resolution of the issue or for getting the kind of cooperative um, uh, problem-solving. You were referring to, your, was it a mayor or a mayoral candidate yes. uh, doing this? Um, it, that sort of cooperative problem-solving is very much needed, and of course it doesn't thrive until you've overcome these sorts of polarizations. So the the thought is to, to try to get people talking. We, uh, we say at the beginning of the book, this book is really to get people talking to one another around the dinner table, in, in their churches, in their mosques, their synagogues, Uh, in their workplace cafes, at their PTA meetings, um, as they, uh, um, you know, go out for walks with their friends or whatever. It's to try to get them talking to one another and trying to work things through and trying to understand this, um, what is potentially a very great risk to the future of their Grandchildren and great grandchildren. So I want to take not to their children.
1: I want to take a big old spotlight, and I want us to shine it for a moment on the scary stuff: on the rising sea levels, the heat waves, the yeah. destruction of the ocean, the droughts, crop failures, floods, wildfires, and epidemics.
0: Yeah. All right, let's shine a spotlight on that. And it so, um, in our second dialogue, um, a guy. A guy who's really had some very bad news um, calls up and says, look, um, you know, you guys are doing climate stuff. I've got this friend. He thinks I should talk to you. I'm coming to the end of my life, Um, and uh, um, uh, I'm thinking of what to do with uh, the money I have. And this friend who's been very good to me since I've had my bad diagnosis, Uh, suggested I talk to you. Um, So what's the big deal here? Uh, It seems to me he says that the things that are likely to happen aren't so bad and the things that are so bad aren't likely to happen. And the young woman on the other end of the line sort of deals with this in three stages. I mean, the first stage is she says, all right, I'll tell you about all sorts of things that we, um, we know about that are very likely to happen. And then she says, don't just get confused by the fact that maybe the sea will go up a foot or two. It's not the averages that are the problem. It is, and this of course rings so true after the last hurricane season, it's the episodes, the, the extreme events that happen. And so she talks about things like wildfires and heat waves and floods and droughts. And points out that those are very likely to happen all over the world, uh, less in Europe probably than in most other places, uh, pretty badly in Africa and um, Asia, North America, South America, Australia are kind of middle cases. And uh, she says this is going to be a sort of recurrent wave of the future, and now you must think of all of these episodes as being interconnected. So, it's a bit like what we've just been seeing. You get a, a, you know, a huge storm in Texas, then a huge storm in Florida, then a huge storm in Puerto Rico. And then before you know it, you've got uh, um, uh, a flood somewhere else and you've got uh, a drought in another place and you've got crop failure and, uh, and now food has got to be organized. And imagine that on a much larger scale because it's likely to happen on a much larger scale even before the end of the century. And you begin to see how these episodes combine um, in really difficult ways so that the resources of any nation, even one as rich as ours, are continually stretched. And then that intersects with other things. It intersects with international tensions. And uh, especially cases of drought where people... Uh, who've lived side by side for centuries maybe suddenly have to start competing for uh, access to water <coughs> and those who don't uh, um, who don't succeed in this are forced to migrate and so now you begin to see how all of these events combine with human suffering and, and human actions that lead to the kinds of things that that we Talked about in that very first scenario, the one where the human population nearly gets wiped out. This is the future. I mean, well, that one well, also
1: affecting the animal population. I thought that was a critical element um, of the episodic effects, that, that is true. changing yeah. something in the ocean then changes something on the land, which then forces animals to migrate and uh, interacting in interacting in different yeah. patterns, and which then affects the human population.
0: Because that provides tremendous opportunities for new diseases to emerge. Thank you for thank you for bringing that point out. Exactly. It's it's you're completely correct. Um, as the ecological relations among animal populations and, and with the human population are disrupted, that gives all sorts of new possibilities for new disease vectors to evolve or diseases that have been previously confined to animals to find their ways into the human population. So one, um, you know, we can't predict where it's going to happen and when it's going to happen, but it's a real possibility. One possibility is huge pandemics and plagues as part of our future.
1: And so part of uh, having conversations and then changing the conversation is also being respectful to the idea that People have different values, different priorities, and also very different decision-making processes. Some will do a cost-benefit analysis. Others will make decisions based on fear. Others, um, you know, will set timelines, and maybe they, the, what's happening now is more important to them in the future or really have different capacities for projecting uh, ahead and bringing that into their process, or someone may just go with their gut.
0: Yeah. So this is—I have to say—this is this is an area that gets really difficult because, of course, um, economists and policymakers love cost-benefit analyses, and these are cases in which it's very, very difficult to do that in any responsible way whatsoever. You can't put probabilities on um, on whether whether or not there's going to be a plague by the end of the century. I mean, that's. I mean the chances of that could be anywhere between 0.01% to 99.9%. Uh and it's it's unspecifiable. And, and it so, takes
1: you down the rabbit hole, right? It, um it, uh, because then you start does. arguing about that.
0: Yeah, exactly. So um we suggest that uh, an analogy uh to use here. Um it's this is a bit like um, being caught in a really bad uh, civil war, multi-sided. Um, you don't know um, what the chances are if you go out and try to scrounge up some food or some medicine or something you really need today. You don't know whether it's going to whether you're going to be attacked by a particular faction on your journey out and back. But you've got to do this day after day after day, and. You know, there are so many possibilities for things um, going wrong and um, your life being uh, snuffed out prematurely that, uh, you know, you probably wish that you hadn't been so um, willing to stay and had gotten out much sooner. Or if uh, to uh, another version of the analogy, it's like playing... Um, Russian roulette with a gun with an enormous number of chambers. So the, the probability that you'll, uh, you'll kill yourself on, on any given uh, spin is not very large. But if you keep doing it long enough, then sooner or later, the odds will be against you. And that's the way in which I think we should think about this. Um, there are just too many ways the future could go wrong unless we take some action pretty quickly. And um, if we don't, I think that um, the chances of there being real suffering within the next century of some form or another that we can't yet predict for a very large number of human beings are really quite sizable. So I want to... Go ahead. Go on. Well, I want to talk in the
1: the last few minutes about the actions we can take and potential solutions and I just want to remind listeners this is Ellie Newman on that got me thinking. I'm speaking with Philip Kitcher. He is a co-author with Evelyn Fox Keller of the Season's Alter How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts and we are talking about talking about climate change and um I want to focus a little bit about actions people can take and the solutions. And the fact that people can take actions, you can still be a disbeliever. You can really say it's all hooey and you don't trust the scientists and you don't believe it. And yet in so many regards, there would be no reason uh, even just to better our current existence to not take some actions as far as you know the air being a little better that we breathe every day, the water being um, in good stead for us to drink. Um, so I want to talk about that, but prior, maybe some bigger solutions as far as technology, um, phasing out fossil fuels, and reforming agriculture.
0: Yeah, so I think, uh, I think many people, when they think about climate change, think, well, what can I do? You can do some things. You can, uh, you can drive uh, an electric car. You can, uh, um, you can eat less meat. Um, you can uh, uh, put solar panels on your house. And that will take the world some way, um, but it won't take us anywhere near far enough because, of course, there are all of these you know, large public things on which we depend um, and that need uh, supplies of, of energy, supplies of electricity. There are cities that uh, um, that, that can't at the moment be served without uh, um, people driving all over the place and uh, um, and you know, heating their houses, etc., etc., etc. So, at some point, in our country and across the world, there's going to have to be a much more uh, general and collective and collaborative movement. And so, we are, are urging, really urging people to um, have these conversations and to start um, to start expressing themselves politically for. Um, cooperation on an international level to help with this. Paris was a wonderful beginning and it was, uh, it was far too little but it was a beginning it was a, an attempt by almost all the world's nations to uh, um, come together and to agree on ways of trying to solve this problem. The targets weren't um, stringent enough and of course they haven't yet been met and since That happened in December 2015. Uh, The two nations who who didn't sign on to the agreement, Syria, of course, it's in the grip of a terrible civil war, and Nicaragua, which didn't sign on because it thought the agreement wasn't enough, have been joined by our country, which had been leading the way under the former president, Barack Obama. Um, Now, that's a terrible step backwards. Of course, it hasn't gone into effect yet, and maybe this administration will eventually reverse itself and get back on board. But in fact, we should be trying to build on and uh, extend the Paris Accords, not draw back from them. And if that's going to happen, I think it's not going to be a matter of people saying, well, I bought my electric car, aren't I a good person? It's going to come about because citizens make their views known and say, something has to be done about this before it's too late. I think so, we could do probably an
1: entire show on the, the challenges of coordinating global democracy. And I want to talk a little bit about that before we end. But I just want to say, I think... It not to say that buying the electric car is enough to just sort of say oh now I've done my part yeah. but I think it is an important step because I think then someone says oh wow I did my part and you know it felt pretty good and it wasn't really a big cost to me and I kind of like my electric car and I can see that it's benefit benefiting me economically and I feel good yeah. about it and so maybe then I can vote to have the country do something on a larger scale that it really seems to be the beginnings of a shift to get people to think this is a problem that we can solve together and that we can solve bit by bit and all of our small actions can add up to a bigger one that then maybe we can see that together we can take on this challenge and it will be um, just a more optimistic approach and and maybe a more pleasant one as well.
0: You're absolutely right. I, I don't want to suggest that people shouldn't buy electric cars. It's a great idea. Um, I don't, uh, but The idea that we can do this through uncoordinated individual action is what worries me. um, We can't fall back on a a kind of individualistic faith, you know. Even without the government doing anything, we the citizens can do it piecemeal. That's not right. Uh, We the citizens have to have to have our government participating. We need all the governments of the world participating in
1: this. You had said if we're, we're, if we're to have a global alliance, if it's going to be strong enough to win the war against atmospheric carbon, we need to understand how, despite all kinds of differences, many of us share hopes for the human future. And that we, as humanity, um, share our, our hopes and vision for the future. So you said we need a cosmopolitan approach. What might that look like? Maybe we'll just start that conversation before we end this one.
0: Okay. So um, here's another, another analogy. Um, we should think of ourselves as a whole species, as coming together to fight an enemy that uh, threatens all of us, and that's uh, the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And like, um, like it or not, all of the other peoples around the world uh, have got to be our allies in this venture, and we've got to make, we've got to have some way of figuring out how we all work together, just as allies do when there when there's a war on. Uh, you may not always like your allies. I mean, the United States and the British weren't terribly keen on Stalin and his regime in World War Two, but. They worked together and they tried to figure out how to apportion uh, duties and things that and costs. And we have to do the same here. So there has to be some institutional setup, some global um, system, some global council through which um, the strategies get worked out and the jobs assigned. And that, I'm afraid, means a certain kind of abnegation, giving up of, uh, of national sovereignty. I mean, this is, this is a, f- a very funny moment because we are urging for global, we're urging for global cooperation as needed at the moment where people want to say, well, my nation comes first. You know, it's all about my nation. It's not about the world. It's not about human beings. It's all about my nation. Um, and that seems to us a terribly retrograde step. Um, This has got to be a cooperative effort. So we think of democracy as something that happens at very different scales. I mean, start with a family. Many families in the educated and affluent parts of the world these days are pretty democratic. It's no longer a father knows best and father decides what's to be done, but this is worked out with... uh, Um, parents very often as the children grow and get older they have voices too. Um, It's done in small communities, in towns when people come together to figure out what kinds of of investments to make in the school system or something like that. It's done at state levels. It's done at the national level. But this is one of the problems and there are others um, at which the nations of the world need to come together. And we need dem- democ- democratic institutions that work at all these levels within, within the household, within the town, within the state, within the nation, and now globally. And figuring out how to do that, um, I would like to think that we can develop and build on the kinds of things that the United Nations at its best has done. Um, but I think we need to go into it with this alliance uh, analogy in mind, uh, thinking that this is something that we have to, we have to band together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately, or rather, our children will fry separately, and uh, um, and we don't want that to happen. So and I think we've of,
1: got your, your next book, How to Have a Respectful, Constructive, Collaborative Conversation.
0: Well, I don't know that I, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, I it, this is, this is, uh, this is an attempt, and um, um and i think evelyn and i have uh, have done what we could for this issue we tried to we've tried to explain um and motivate people to get started it, but and I, that's I, all I we ju- need I to just, do
1: we all need to make well, our I, our best effort
0: yeah yeah but i hope people will i hope i hope this will start some conversations and that it will lead to Good political ends, anyway. and I think I
1: think it shall. This is Ellie Newman. That got me thinking. Much. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Professor Philip Kitcher, uh, co-author with Evelyn Fox Keller, latest book, *The Seasons Alter: How to Save Our Planet in Six Acts*. Well, thank you so much.
0: Thank you. I hope you can edit that. Okay, I'm sorry about the switch of phones oh, in the middle. I
1: think it was fantastic.
0: Well, I really enjoyed it. You are great fun to talk. Oh
1: with. wonderful. Well, thank you're you so very, much.
0: You're a very good interviewer you uh, you' read you you done some very good reading and uh, and, and it, you were just just very lively and you made some excellent points. I thought oh, it was great, great.
1: <laughs> well, I read I read, really I read a, a very good book.
0: Thank you okay thank, thank you bye-bye All right. bye-bye. Now.